Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. This week I wanted to dig into the topic of design, so I called up a friend of mine, Chris Wynn. Chris works for Judson Designs, a graphic design and branding house here in Houston. He also does interior consulting for residential and commercial properties, from apartments to restaurants. And that overlap of form and function when designing a restaurant interior fascinates me. Even though I'm like pretty architecturally illiterate, I wanted to hear how he thinks about dining rooms and coffee shops and how... All of those things are going to change uh, as a result of quarantine, as well as like the movement that had already been going on, taking the formality out of dining, moving towards a more casual experience. That was happening before shit hit the fan, and he's definitely been a part of that here in Houston. Chris also has a whiskey and car podcast called New for 96, and I wanted to hear how he mixes his love for scotch with his love for vintage automobiles, both classic cars, especially the kinds that Chris is into, and premium alcohol can be seen as exclusionary or pretentious, but Chris has told me in the past about the efforts being made to remove some of the, like, gatekeepers within the automotive industry and make the car community more accessible. Um, It's a pretty freewheeling conversation uh, fueled by some Hibiki 12 here on my end. So uh, we'll just go ahead and get started. And how's everything going for you otherwise? I mean, how's everything over with Judson Designs and all that stuff? I can't imagine. Are you guys going into the office right now? We are not going into the office, uh, not at at least as uh, a group uh mark judson the principal is uh there kind of on a regular basis Mm -hmm. uh i should say i think uh it's been a second since i've been to the actual office but uh matt Tabor, who Mm -hmm. uh i think is familiar around the industry friend uh, of the pod we had him i think he was episode three for uh class. yeah so okay yeah he uh he he studios out of uh our studio uh, and so I think, uh, on occasion, uh, he and Leslie go in. So you haven't been to blue Dorn yet. The restaurant that is in your front yard or backyard, depending on how we want to look. Yeah, at I have not. No, we'd been watching them, uh, construct things. And then, uh, I have only on occasion stopped by the office just to pick up some things. So I haven't, I have not, uh, I didn't even know they were open actually. Uh, so that is news to me yeah i mean it's weird to think about restaurant openings at a time like this but um they are they are occurring and i went into and sat at the bar and just had like i think a negroni at the bar counter and it was Mm -hmm. it's a beautiful build out i like what they did with that bar space they kind of got rid of the community table that existed in the bar Mm -hmm. side of things from passing provisions and just extended the bar out so it's like 20 seats Okay. I didn't go into the rest of the dining room. I didn't use the bathroom. I just kind of went in through that like back entrance where the patio mm-hmm. is. Yeah. Had at the bar, had a drink, kind of like scoped that out. But yeah. And had the baked Alaska because you got to oh. get the baked Alaska. Okay. So. I'll put that on the list. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's It's been a, a second since I've dined in. Uh, really? I've, of course, dined out a lot um, or take out uh, a lot. But yeah. Uh, uh, dining in, I think I've it just in this with ongoing events, uh, maybe just a handful of times. Um, mm. So, uh, but that does sound intriguing. We've uh, been in that space since it was uh, Gravitas. 
hmm. years ago. Uh, do you remember that restaurant? No, that might have been before my time because I moved to Houston just after PMP had won its Bon Appetit oh. top ten new restaurants in 2013. So okay, yeah, Gravitas was in the space just uh, before PMP, and they were there for maybe four years. I want to say was uh, it the same and, building or same building? Uh, same building, very different interior. Uh, and before that, and I'd actually, I've been into, I think, almost every single iteration of that space because before that, it ex had existed for decades as uh, an Antones shop. Because it's uh, huge. It's a massive kind of shell of a building. Yeah. I think it had been that for decades, but I cannot. That's remember. crazy. Like counter yeah. service sandwich shop. Like you go in, you yeah. order, kind of, they bring it out to you. Yeah, and Pass and Provision, uh, they actually preserved the original sign, I think, that was mm -hmm. uh, uh, hanging outside the shop. So I don't know if the current space, in the current uh, thing, they've done that. But I don't know. I'd always loved the way Pass and Provisions had, like, I think it was like the basketball, like um, hardwood floor. They had used that mm -hmm. as like yep. either part of a table or for walling. But I love when you repurpose something. Yeah, there was a story behind that, and now I can't recall what it was. Uh, but it was a neat. The community table was neat because it was, uh, it was like it was modular, so you could mm -hmm. slide it to make different sizes. You could just make a two top or a four top out of mm -hmm. you know that community table because it was on like some sort of rail system. Yeah, yeah, it was very clever. I and I imagine that something. I don't know if that exact version of it is going to exist, but I think all of us are wondering, you know, if community tables will just be some vestige of a bygone era, you know, yeah. in this pandemic period. Yeah, no kidding. You know, I'm sure that's something you think about a lot in terms of design. Yeah, well, I mean, I was actually, uh, as of the last few years, Houston was finally warming up to the idea of sharing spaces <laughs> uh, because that's just not, uh how we were built years ago and so you know we put a, a community table in inversion hmm. uh i forget how many it actually sat but uh, i remember the conversation with david Buer about it and we just kind of landed on the idea of you know what i think people are just gonna have to get used to it like this is the most efficient thing for the space and hmm. people usually like their own little tables their own little pods nooks and crannies. yeah, yeah. And so i i was happy to see that houston was you know, and people had, I, when they started using uh, the inversion space, they they warmed up to it. People sat next to each other, like strangers. I'm sure it it spawned conversation, maybe friendships, who knows? But <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's kind of sad that um, now we may be seeing that go away. Maybe in the short term, maybe in the long term, who knows? But Houston, I was, I was happy to see that change start to happen. Oh, funny. Well, um, before we get any further, like, um, good to see you. Um, this is a, you. a podcast of the Chris's. Um, Indeed. We've got Chris Wynn, the founder of Analog Dialogue, co-host of New for 96, a vintage automotive and whiskey podcast, and one of the lead designers at Judson Design, a branding design house based here in Houston. That'd be it. That'd noted, be a noted sherry lover as well. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. In fact, if it wasn't noon, I'd be having one now. Although, I mean, it is a Saturday, so. It is Saturday, uh, which is why I busted out the big boy. I brought a little uh, something for you. I brought oh, my look at little tabiki. Yeah. You know, I figured it would be fun for me to have a little Japanese whiskey to drink right now, just because it was 
I guess it wasn't this time last year because you went, I think, around November to Japan and you visited a couple of the different Suntory uh, distilleries, right? Yeah, I'd, I'd gone to the main one. Uh, mm. The Yamazaki, right? Outside of Kyoto? Yeah, yeah that was that was a it was a fun time, uh, especially because there was a tasting that uh, eventually led you to you could then they had their uh, their planned tour where you had uh, the tasting and then you could then purchase additional tasting. <laughs> and we did do that and end up getting uh, pretty silly by the end of it. So because uh, they're extremely generous with uh, how much they give you. So but yeah, oh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, so for people listening, it's the Yamazaki distillery that's, I would say, what, like 30, 40 minutes outside of Kyoto. It's kind of in between Kyoto and Osaka. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know how many um, distilleries you visited in your career as a whiskey drinker, but have you visited a lot? It, was this any different from any of those others? No, I, I've, as far as distilleries go, I mean, uh, I've, I've not ever taken like a, a trip dedicated to it. Although like here in Texas, of course we have a few. So uh, it is different just in that, that Yamazaki facility is so old yeah. and you just kind of feel the age. I mean, especially when they were taking you through um, essentially the caves uh, where the barrels are being stored. And I mean, they've just been there for decades, if not, uh, you know, longer. Yeah. And uh, you just get this sense of like history and whatnot. And so, and it's not to say that new distilleries, uh, don't have their own sort of charm, but like walking through something like, uh, like that, where, I mean, they, they had barrels that, uh, were still aging from, you know, the 1940s yeah. and older. And I don't know, there's just a, there's just such an air, uh, and a sense of history and, it's just, it's, it's, it's more than the brand. It's like this tradition. And so, yeah, I, I would say, you know, without having actually, you know, visited many distilleries and I, I imagine this is what it might be like if I went to Scotland and toured uh, their various distilleries there, which I would actually love to do. I would love yeah. to take kind of a Nick Offerman style <laughs> uh, tour through uh, Scotland, but uh yeah, um, that is something that I think uh, is unique to that versus uh, having gone through various distilleries in the United States as far as just kind of newer uh, mm -hmm. startup style distilleries. Well, as, as someone that really enjoys cars, do you have you visited any manufacturing facilities where I know like, for instance, if you go to Germany, like touring mm -hmm. one of the plants where BMWs are made, like yeah. going to Stuttgart and seeing what's going on at Porsche or anything like that. Have you had those experiences? Uh, I have. Um, so those type of tours, if you're touring the manufacturing facilities, usually there's some sort of special arrangement. One, you've either purchased a car and, you know, it's part of the tour or you're an automotive journalist. Uh, my co-host on New for 96, Kevin McCauley, is um, he's an automotive photographer, uh, who writes for various publications as well. Uh, so it's very likely that if you've read a road and track, you've seen his work and he did this amazing trip where he picked up a, one of the newer Porsches, it's a 992, 911, and he was able to drive it from the factory 
he toured the facility, drove it from the factory around Germany, uh, got it to the port. It was a DHL plane, essentially. And they loaded the car onto the plane. He rode in the cargo plane with the car. Uh, and there were uh, other drivers as well with other cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, they landed stateside and then they continued uh, driving through the United States. That's wild. Yeah. So he had driven that car on two different continents in the same, essentially in the same day. Hmm. Uh, so anyways, in that situation, yeah, he was able to tour the the factory. I think there are other situations. For me, I've, um, I have toured uh, a few facilities, but the most notable one uh, was a, I don't know what the state of the company is now, but uh, the last time I was in Los Angeles, uh, a friend of uh, myself and Kevin's, uh, we uh, he worked PR for Faraday Future. It was intended to be a Tesla rival. Mm. Uh, I think the company is still going, but I think they, they have had fits and starts. And so yeah. we were able to tour their facility. Uh, and it was kind of interesting to see that the future of automotive uh, design and manufacturing, essentially. Yeah. Uh, and at that point, they were just manufacturing prototypes still. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was neat going through. You saw all the models. You saw, mm-hmm. like, the working prototypes. You saw this and that. Of course, we weren't able to take any any photos of any sort. It's, uh, but It's kind of weird when you think about it, right? Because the relationship that you as a consumer have with a brand, you know, there's no better way to build that relationship than through visiting a facility where you can make those meaningful connections. Like, mm-hmm. Clearly your example at like the Yamazaki distillery by Centauri, right? Like you can see the history. There's no better way to better appreciate that product. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like most car plants, you know, there's some sort of exclusivity that they don't allow people to just come in and develop that relationship. It sounds like Mm -hmm. kind of an invite only big barrier to entry is like buying one of these cars in order to, you know, see it. Yeah. Uh, I guess there are other ways you can develop a relationship with a brand beyond visiting a specific place, like a physical site. But I don't know, to me as an outsider, it just seems like a lost opportunity, you know, to not have that. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, you know, in part it's probably, uh, so we actually had this conversation recently on, uh, oh, it wasn't on the podcast. It was actually, um, it was off pod with, it was off pod, uh, but it was a, with a, a mutual friend of ours who we were, we were essentially just talking about uh, why it was that these are kind of limited opportunities and people are, companies are very protective of, of their manufacturing processes. And, you know, it, you know, at the end of the day, you still end up with a product, a car that works, uh, mm-hmm. but it's how you get there, how quickly you get there, et cetera. And I think there's, there's definitely a difference between manufacturing a car and in, in an older way, I think, you know, going back to Japanese, um, we actually, when we were in Japan, we did stop by uh, a Toyota museum. Oh, did where you? They, yeah, Toyota has a, an entire city in uh, Japan called Toyota City. Very clever name. Yeah, indeed. And, uh, uh, you know, clearly huge car manufacturer. They are just literally everywhere across the globe. And so, you know, they have their processes locked down. And, you know, this might be a Japanese thing, but, you know, the Japanese craft, I mean, whether it's uh, alcohol or producing a car, they take a lot of pride in how they do things and the traditions and whatnot. And Toyota is really well known for producing their manufacturing techniques. And 
we did we toured we didn't tour their uh, manufacturing facilities, but uh, they did have um, they did have explainers and whatnot uh, when we went. It, it, this was the Toyota Museum uh, in I'm gonna mispronounce it, Aichi. And it, they talked about their manufacturing process, et cetera. Uh, and it was just kind of interesting to see, you know, this uh, process that's been developed well over time versus uh, the process that, say, startup uh, companies, you know, EV manufacturers and whatnot are taking to produce their cars. Uh, mm. And, you know, if without going too much into the weeds, like it is very different. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, one one process it's rooted in history tradition uh developed just well over time and the next is or rather the newer the startups are trying to upturn the industry and producing these things in very different ways and i imagine that might be that could be paralleled with distilleries kind of the old guard versus uh the new guard and the way that they're doing things and while there is like a middle place i'm sure people who are starting up distilleries uh you know now are I think are trying to do something different. They're trying to add more. They're trying to add a different perspective to the conversation, I suppose. Yeah, I, I think they know they can't like just make tradition or create, you know, history out of nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that you, especially with wineries, distilleries, you know, things that have existed for a very, very long time, they have the benefit. I mean, we were talking about Sherry a little bit earlier, but like I've gone to Jerez a couple of times now and both at both visits, you know, those places are just so proud of like what they have these like very, very old barrels and, mm-hmm. you know, a new winery that's opening up in another region of Spain, an emerging market, you know, whether that's, you know, somewhere in Penedes or something like that, they know they can't recreate, you know, a century or two centuries of tradition. They're going to have to find some other way to create some sort of meaningful relationship with whoever's coming to visit Mm -hmm. them or with the brand as a whole. So, yeah, certainly. So, I mean, your go-to beverage normally is whiskey, would you say? Is that like the go-to? It is. Uh, And it's funny that you mentioned that we, uh, it's the new for 96 podcast. Uh, I get my co-host Kevin McCauley is a, he's a good friend. We've known each other for uh, years now. How'd you guys meet? Because you've never worked in the car industry yourself, right? No, no, no. Uh, and we were friends on Twitter, uh, or we followed each other. And we're—he's actually his background is in design, hmm. uh, graphic design. And so we had, I think, known each other from the industry, and we knew that uh, we both were interested in in the automotive industry. And one day, I actually I met him at an industry event. And which was that, you know, the, our relationship is not entirely based off of alcohol and drinking, <laughs> but uh, we did meet uh, at an industry event that uh, took place at a bar and it escapes me now off Main Street and it turned into uh, Boomtown. Hmm. What was the bar that used to be there? Oh, the Honeymoon. The Honeymoon. Yeah. 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 So we'd met there. And then so after we'd met in person, uh, we ended up just endlessly talking about cars we it turned out we both really enjoyed whiskey and so we eventually melded that although that's typically not what you want to hear on the surface that cars and alcohol mix but uh, (laughs) at least in conversation they did so yeah that's funny it's it's interesting because you're right i mean you can approach cars from so many different perspectives right like you can appreciate the automotive industry from like an aesthetic point of view from a design mm-hmm. side of things or there I know there probably are a lot of people 
within like car Twitter or something that really are just in there for like more granular kind of quantitative bits of information, right? Sure. The interest, you know, and it basically goes to levels of pedantry. Uh, you can you can be just completely fascinated by the engineering side of it, and you're just very technical about what you're interested in, or you can be interested in like uh, social impacts of like mobility, essentially, mm-hmm. and uh, then there's like a strong nostalgia uh, component yeah. to it too. And then there's just kind of like the far end, which I would say that I'm least interested in as is like most of the people that I uh, associate with in the car community uh, would be like the value side of it. People who just buy expensive things just for the sake of it being expensive or showy. Mm-hmm. And so while at the same time, like cars aren't necessarily universally accessible, there are there are a lot of uh, intersecting paths, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, one of the more interesting car collectors that I know uh, exists on multiple levels uh, of this interest, in which he has owned everything from a Chevy Typhoon, which is essentially a late '80s, mid '90s cheap SUV that has mm-hmm. been souped up at the factory to be extremely fast and it's such a weird thing that you would never think anyone would have interest in that and on the opposite end of it he has a ferrari testarossa and all these things are in his garage and he has he's extremely uh approachable about uh his interest in these cars it is not about like exclusivity he just he has you know collected these because they were interesting and he does fun he does fun things with them we have I actually met him when uh, we drove from Houston to Austin to attend this car show called Radwood, and it's an 80s, 90s car show. Uh, And that's part of this interest, too, is uh, that the 80s and 90s are now being looked back upon in a very nostalgic way, Uh, so much so that people our age, you know, in their 30s, we're we are looking back at, you know, the cars that surrounded our lives, like our parents' cars and how we got here, et cetera. And, you know, just as a sampling of how crazy this has gotten uh, is so, and that is, that's it exactly. It's, you know, we are now at a place in our lives where uh, we're less aspirational and more just kind of solidifying who it is we are, I guess. Uh, But a, I'm trying to think of a, a really outrageous example, but there's a, a website called Bring a Trailer. It's an auction site, and it's basically upturned uh, the car auction industry. There are these old guard uh, auction houses where it is extremely snooty, and we're talking about you know Concours level style cars that sell for you know six figures on average, etc., if not more on occasion. Mm-hmm. And so this site which started off as a blog for obscure niche interest cars. Uh, and it was just commentary at first. They opened up an auction portion and now they're probably one of the leaders. Uh, mm. And they're with frequency now selling cars in this range, you know, in the six figure, seven figure range. Uh, I actually sold my BMW wagon on this site because it was such a niche interest car. And, but that's just it. So they've sold everything from, you know, a 92 Civic with, you know, 5,000 miles for $30,000 to uh, a $1.2 million Mercedes 300 SL Gullwing, which is like that iconic classic Mercedes. Yeah. And uh, everything in between that you would never think would 
hold interest. But I mean, uh, you know, I there was a 1995, a 97 Toyota Land Cruiser, one that you would have just seen just about everywhere uh, yeah. in the 90s. And, you know, a lot of them are still running around now as just kind of uh, junkers, but they still work. Yeah. You know, it was this one came out of Houston and it sold for $77,000. That's wild. Uh, which is, and it, it's more than what it sold for when it was new mm-hmm. without adjusting for inflation. But that makes me uh, think of like, I, I mean, I'm thinking in terms of like the fashion industry, the way like Patagonia or any of these, you know, sure. brands, you know, are selling like vintage fleece for like absurd amounts of money. Oh, at yeah. This point, you know? Yeah. 90s fashion is back in it. And it, it comes down to things that are, it, it's like this in uh, design as well. It comes down to timelessness reevaluated uh versus something that's retro and kitschy mm-hmm. and i think a, i think a lot of people misunderstand what nostalgia is about i mean there is that you know there is that component where it is like oh you know i had something like this when i was younger and so that's why you you have interest in it but then you know it's like it's like vintage furniture you know there is a kitschy component to it retro where it's just like oh this is from an era and so you're looking at it more as a piece from this era versus uh something that is just truly a timeless design and either it has continually been on the minds of people as timeless or it has been rediscovered Mm -hmm. uh as a forgotten design and brought about again uh and the same thing with cars and same thing with fashion as well. But when you talk about like design and furniture and things like that, I feel like that speaks very specifically to kind of like your focus because mm-hmm. you do a lot of interior design work. Um, you consult for a lot of interior design projects. You've worked with a lot of restaurants and your focus, your kind of wheelhouse is mid-century modern, right? That's kind uh, of what I you would, vibe out most on. Uh, I would say that that's probably what is most identifiable about uh, essentially collections that I put together. Mm-hmm. Uh and I, that's the easiest label for it, but I think it's kind of a limiting uh, one as well. And it's hard to get away from it sometimes just because that's just the most uh, consumable label. Uh, but uh, yeah, if you were to break that down, if you want to expand on that a little bit, like that mid-century yeah, I, modern, it's something that we all say so often, especially yeah, when we're referring yeah. to furniture. And that's, you know, that can be attached to a trend as well. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's true, like, you know, there was a sudden resurgence in interest uh, in mid-century inspired design. Uh, I'd say like starting in the mid 2000s, uh, mm-hmm. mid aughts, I guess. But I, I do focus a lot on uh, when I'm looking at pieces to put together for a space, whether it's residential or commercial, I lean a lot on 20th century modern design, mm-hmm. uh, but not necessarily because it comes from a certain era or it, it gives off a certain look, but rather that these are pieces that I consider to be timeless. Uh, these are pieces that I think aren't part of a trend, but rather uh, in 10 years, 20 years, you will still look at it with the same uh, visual value as you did on that day. And as people did you know, 40 years ago when the design first came out. And so a lot of that does come from that era. And it's not to say that there are other eras in which that could be applied. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's coming out now that I would consider to be timeless. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you know, the creative machine is ever going. Like, we're going to constantly produce 
new and better things, hopefully, you know, no one wants to think that we've peaked, but a lot of the designs that I lean on and refer to are tried and tested. They have survived the passages of time and have been accessorized with things that have gone in and out of fashion. Uh, So, you know, my own home is filled with a lot of 20th century modern American designers. And I wouldn't even consider my house to be designed. It's more of a collection of things that I find interest in and I have a certain reverence for. And so uh, I I actually collect Eames pieces Mm. uh, quite often. And it's not necessarily because I think uh, there's a uniqueness to it. Although the pieces that I tend to collect, I like collecting early pieces uh, just because they represent the beginning of this idea. And there's a timelessness to Eames furniture. And, you know, everyone has seen like the Eiffel chairs, everyone has seen, you know, uh, various chairs that have become easily identifiable as Eames chairs. And that's fine. Like that's part of what happens when it enters into uh, the public consciousness. Everyone, it fits universally and that's fine. Uh, It can be labeled as overused. It can be labeled as, again, part of a trend, et cetera. And that's fine. You know, that's just going to be what happens when something gets popularized. Mm-hmm. But a lot of this furniture was designed to be, uh, Eames furniture specifically, was designed with the mass market in mind. Uh, it was meant to be easily accessible and universal. It was designed essentially for the people. Uh, yeah. And it was, when they came out, they eventually did enter into kind of the high-end market uh, towards the Charles and Ray Eames, towards the ends of their careers and lives. But uh, initially, it, this was all meant to be very easily uh, accessible furniture. Yeah. It was meant for post-war America to move people beyond what they thought was uh, the American dream, I suppose. And so I'm, I have a high fascination with that, and that's why I collect a lot of it. If you you know peruse my Instagram, you'll see a lot of uh, vintage Eames pieces. And I, I collect it on a very, very consciously. It's just it's not just like, oh, this is an Eames piece, so that's why I have it. Uh, mm-hmm. It's because I have uh, early shell chairs, say, for instance, the shell chairs are the fiberglass, molded fiberglass chairs. Mm-hmm. And I, those are ubiquitous, but the ones that I collect are ones with specific value and meaning. Uh, yeah. I think it's important to have one of those if you're going to be collecting this history, I guess. Yeah. And so I have a couple of those. I have uh, the classic rocker. And the one that I have is a Venice beach red label, which means that it was produced. And, you know, just like with, uh, wine and spirits, with cars, with anything else, you can get just really down into the Mm -hmm. nuance where two things may look similar, but they're not actually similar. Yeah. yeah. Uh, But this one is a, uh, so this one has a red label underneath, which means that it was produced at the Eames office where there was a small period of time where they actually produced the furniture in the Eames office off of uh, Venice mm-hmm. Boulevard uh, in Los Angeles. And it was before manufacturing was moved to Herman Miller facilities. So we're uh, like in the fifties or this would be fifties era. Yeah. Fifties yeah, okay. era. So this is a, this is basically a, a second edition. So this is the second production round uh, of the rocking chair. And mm-hmm. so in uh, this chair, you know, it has so much patina on it. Like the wood runners are just like, they're worn and they have this just lovely wear to them. Yeah. And 
I love that. I love the history that's been soaked into that uh, versus like buying a brand new one from Design Within Reach or getting a replica one from yeah. Amazon or something like that. And I have no problem with like, you know, people acquiring like replicas. I don't think it devalues uh, anything. Uh, it, it does make it further ubiquitous, I suppose. But, you know, it if anything at all, it goes back to the initial idea for these pieces, which was that it was meant for the people. Like it was yeah, more utilitarian. It's meant yeah. to be used by many people, which I think yeah. that connects in a lot of ways to the kind of like interior design work that you've helped out with for many restaurants, right? Mm -hmm. um, because that's an example of like furniture, you know, whether it's a table or a chair or some other piece that's going to get used by a whole lot of people, get a lot yeah. of wear and tear. Oh, there's so much consideration that goes into every every detail of use and any touch point, essentially. What are some of the ones that kind of stand out for you in the work that you've done kind of consulting with restaurants or bars or coffee shops over mm -hmm. the years? Uh, that is a tough one. Um Honestly, one of the most enjoyable projects I worked on was probably Inversion, and that was mm -hmm. uh, part of my entree into commercial work. And uh, it was a small budget. It was a small budget, quick turnaround, and there were very specific uses because that's um, it's a high volume coffee shop. Uh, people are in and out. There are a lot of coffee shop dwellers too, and it's a small space as well. Yeah. And what was enjoyable about that? I did actually enjoy the the end product. And again, it's kind of evolved from there. So uh, it doesn't quite resemble what it did a few years ago, but there are still a lot of the remnants, uh, or there's still a lot of pieces that are still there, including the community table, say, for instance, yeah. that we were talking about earlier. And it relied a lot on creative challenges to solve for certain needs. One, we had to fit a certain number of uh, seats in there. And again, in a tightly packed space like that, you have to figure out uh, the minimum comfort level that people are willing to accept. Which is something you do hear about a lot, like whether it's like real or not, people say like that coffee shops or like high volume restaurants will intentionally choose a chair that's not the most comfortable mm -hmm. in an effort to like turn those seats over more frequently or restaurants yeah. that intentionally don't soundproof the space because they don't want people lingering long after their meals finished. Yeah, there, there are definitely a lot of goals when it comes to movement uh, of mm -hmm. patrons in the space. And a coffee shop has both like a that coffee shop like that has both those needs. They want people to stay and continue to purchase products, but they also like turnover because it means that more people can come in. And so you have to solve for both of those needs. And so, you know, a lot of the seating surfaces in there are of the firm variety to help with a little bit of movement. Although if someone's going to sit there, they're going to sit there anyways. Yeah. Uh, but when you say we, firm, you're referring to like the raw material used to make that chair? Or? Yeah. Sorry. I'm trying to diplomatically say like it's a harder <laughs> seating surface. So, uh, you know, you're not going to feel like you're we're talking a like push chair. on seat. We're talking like yeah, 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 exactly. There, there, there is a uh, sort of banquet style bench in one mm -hmm. corner where you can just kind of and it with with upholstered seating where you can sit and you know stay as long as you want. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then other seating surfaces are a little bit harder, but more specifically, we so the bar area. One of my favorite details uh was that we had this tight bar area it's l-shaped essentially mm -hmm. uh and that wraps around the uh 
the bar area where you know everything's happening and whatnot. And so there wasn't a lot of room for movement, uh, let alone like seating surfaces, et cetera. So we ended up coming up with this floating uh, two top idea in which these two tops are attached to the wall, they're floating, which allows them to be a little bit smaller, closer to the wall. And it does it it clears the walkway of you know table legs, et cetera. It also, uh, in theory, reduces the desire for people to pull up additional chairs and connect tables and kind of make that space awkward. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it allowed for a lot of flow around the bar, uh, one for uh, for pickup, but also uh, just while people are waiting. So, and that area has circulation, just kind of tight circulation. And we had some plumbing restrictions and whatnot where we could place the bar. And so uh, that's one t- detail that I, I still look back fondly on and something yeah. I'd love to incorporate in another space is just that, like making that space do 10 things all mm-hmm. at once. And, and and that's kind of the beauty of it too. You love these creative challenges where like, again, there wasn't a lot of budget. You know, we ended up using a lot of plywood, butcher block uh, because it, it was easy to manipulate. It was quick to produce and yeah. it was uh, low cost. And it still, it, it, it lends itself well to that kind of industrial loft look of that building. And mm-hmm. so it, it, all those pieces kind of lined up together uh, hmm. really nicely, but yeah. So sorry, long story short, um, I think, that is probably one of the projects where I, I look back really fondly on uh, because I do actually like those challenges. Not to say that I don't like budget either. You know, mm-hmm. a large budget is always welcome, of course. But I, smaller budgets make you think more and find solutions. And there's something about creativity uh, needing boundaries as a prompt. And I think this is going to be true, whether it's graphic design, interior design, or any sort of design, is that a designer's worst enemy sometimes can be no limits. Mm-hmm. So uh, so any project that has that sort of limitation, I really enjoy working on, just because it, it you get to show how clever you can be. You get to find a solution that I, I hope that people walk in and say, I understand the restrictions, and this is an amazing solution. So yeah. in terms of your relation, the way in which you design for restaurants versus designing for apartments or condos, do you take a different approach to how you might be manipulating or utilizing that small space? I mean, the idea that one is getting used more or less than the other, or is it kind of like one streamlined approach to design that is applicable be regardless of what it's being used for professionally or personally? Uh, the execution is always going to be different because uh, mm. that will always be the variable. Uh, it always starts with, I mean, the first questions that I ask, whether it's a residential or commercial project, big or small, is uh, what are your needs? How do you mm. use the space? How would you like to use the space? Uh, how would you like not to use the space? And so it always starts from a solution standpoint. Uh, it's not about, uh, I don't, you know, I don't enter into a project immediately thinking, I want this chair here. I want that to be this color and that color. Like, yeah. uh, it really is about solutions first. Uh, mm-hmm. And I do a lot of, uh, I almost enjoy the space planning aspect uh, more than I do the styling aspects because that's 
kind of where the cleverness comes in is how how you piece the puzzle together. That's the yeah. foundation. Hell yeah. Well, what have you been drinking during the quarantine? What's been your uh, go-to beverage throughout the summer? Oh my. Uh, my go-to beverage. My house scotch, which is boring, uh, is uh, a Glenlivet 12. And It's not that boring. I think there are far more boring options out there than that. Yeah, sure. Uh, so that's, uh, I've been, I've discovered that they produce a liter and a liter and a half bottle. <laughs> so to reduce like having to run out to buy in bulk, baby store. Yeah. So I've, I have been buying these liter and a half bottles, but it's, it's actually mainly been, it's mainly been whiskeys. Uh, Whiskey more so than like wine or yeah, making yeah. cocktails at home. Are you much of a cocktailer? Not, and that probably goes in in line with. Uh, I have discovered, or I've had to learn to cook for myself, uh, which is a <laughs> new thing. And so I should learn how to make cocktails. Uh, that should be the next step. But uh, no, no, I I, I don't I like that. The logical step is learn how to cook and then learn how to cocktail. Yeah, because once I've yeah. burnt whatever I've made, I could use a cocktail. So <laughs> I know we talked a little bit about your work at Judson. And y'all have done some amazing work with both restaurants, you know, Heights mm -hmm. Mercantile very recently, um, as well yeah. as other projects entirely think, separate from I think that's the hospitality probably, industry. I think that might be, uh, I'm less associated with on a social level, but uh, I've actually been working for Jetson Design. Uh, I think this is year 13. Wow. And so that's technically, that is my day-to-day -day, is a design director for uh for Judson, Judson Design has been around for 30 plus years now, uh, doing branding work. And yeah, we've actually done a lot of work with hospitality. Um, we did work uh, a lot of work with the Mitchell family um, in Galveston. So we branded mm. the Galvez, Tremont House. Which uh, like for people listening that don't know it, kind of like the OG hotel of Galveston, allegedly yeah. haunted, like just oh, an yeah. amazing piece of history, right? Yeah, I, and you know, yeah, all sorts of just kind of interesting history about that hotel, including like uh, San Maceo, the mobster uh, from, you know, 40s, 50s, had a secret suite there where he'd hide oh, really? out, et cetera. Yeah. So uh, I don't I don't know if any of that still exists. But yeah, so that's a, and it, you know, weathered the storm uh, of uh, 1900. I think it was, yeah. that might be even uh, misspeaking there. But um so yeah talk it, about it, a place it, that like is so tethered to history i mean we were talking yeah. about some of these distilleries earlier i mean that's an amazing example of a place that you walk in and you can just feel it right yeah oh yeah very much so and uh mitchell family had uh purchased these hotels up restored them to uh you know extremely high standards and i think they may have sold them since uh but uh we had helped out with the original branding um uh, when they had renovated them and uh, we'd actually most recently done the brand work for the Lancaster hmm. uh, downtown uh, they were flooded out during Harvey uh, Hurricane Harvey and so went through an immense renovation and that included uh, rebranding uh, the hotel as well so we we do a lot of uh, environmental envi I'm sorry environmental graphic design as well which means mm -hmm. uh, doing uh, graphics for interior spaces as well as exterior uh, spaces. So like uh, we'll do uh, these really cool like sign designs, et cetera, with you know, the neon. So the Lancaster, if you ever get a chance to drive by it, uh, you'll see kind of some of our work. Uh, Hell yeah. The outside of it. 
Um, but yeah, we, um, so yeah, we do that. We, we work with a lot of real estate developers as well. Uh, so, uh, we've helped out with Heinz projects, Midway projects, Brookfield who does Allen center. And so, yeah, we've been around for a while. And so that's, that's my kind of, that's my day to day. And then the, the interior consultancy all does take my attention as well. Uh, but I run that kind of uh, separately. That had to have been so cool, though, working on things like the Lancaster, Galvez. I mean, such historical places, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. and finding oh, yeah. a way to make that resonate it for a new audience, right? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. kind of by delving into that like past. Yeah, very much so. I mean, and the Mitchell family was still is very invested in, you know, Galveston, revitalizing it and uh, making it a destination uh, which do you think uh, that's worked? Has that succeeded? Uh, I would say so. I mean, you know, uh, the other family that has that same draw, you know, the Moody family, uh, like I think their combined efforts and others as well. Uh, I, you know, it's not the type of destination that you would think in a traditional sense. Uh, you know, it's not this place that people will constantly think of that you should go to if you have time off, et cetera. Uh, but it's it's otherwise revitalized. I think a city that's a, adjacent to Houston. It's a beach town, and I, I think before this, and actually, I, I I can't speak with much authority to what it was like before. But I don't know that it was much of that. Like it, I don't. I think that it, there were ups and downs, and yeah. before this revitalization, it was uh, kind of a down period, and people mm-hmm. didn't think of it in a very fond manner, uh, yeah. at least outside of the community, and so. Uh, I think now if you're looking for a quick getaway, Galveston, it may, while it may not be, you know, top of mind, I think it's something that's much more in in consideration nowadays. So. Oh yeah. All right. So I got a couple of questions, like rapid fire ones. Sure. I want to hear top three cars, dead or alive. Like what are kind of your like benchmarks, your OGs, your goats? Like what, what are we talking? Oh, See, that's uh, that is a one of those questions where uh, it's hard to say. Like, if someone were to ask me what my favorite car is, uh, that's hard to say because different needs, different moods, different whatever. Yeah. So that's why I'm I'll giving say, you three. That's why I'm letting you have three options here. Okay, so uh, I'll say the Porsche 911 is top of mind, um, mainly because it's such a good all-around sports car, and it's also like steeped in history. Uh, it has, it goes like, it has deep race, racing history. It's also a four seater, uh, that you can use for any purpose. And people do, uh, you can use this car, drive it to 200,000 miles. Uh, my 1986, uh, 911 Carrera has 150,000 miles on it, mm-hmm. uh, and still going strong. Yeah. Uh, so I like it for its utilitarian purpose as much as I do the sportiness of it. Um, Another one, um, I think in that same vein, maybe a, a BMW M3 wagon, uh, which actually technically doesn't exist, but a, an acquaintance of mine made one. The, the mm. BMW uh, M3 is an iconic car. It, it's kind of, uh, it's BMW's, what well, used to be their entry level, but there is a sport version essentially. Uh, a performance version, I should say, uh, called mm-hmm. the M3. And they've made those in two doors, four doors. Uh, and the 
ultimate one would be a wagon because then you can make it a true all-rounder. And the car that I recently sold on Brain Trailer was a manual uh, rear-wheel drive BMW wagon, uh, which is a spec that nobody wants except for mm -hmm. car enthusiasts. And so this acquaintance had made basically the ultimate, the ultimate uh, all-rounder car, which was a manual rear-wheel drive performance-oriented wagon. If we're uh, going to talk about wagons real quick, I need your yeah. take on Virgil Abloh's uh, Mercedes G-Wagon design. Like, oh, I'm uh, sure you've seen it. I mean, I have seen it. Yeah. I don't um, know if you're much of a Toyota Scion kind of guy, but. <laughs> I, I have not. It does kind of look like the uh, the Scion box uh, a little bit. Um, I haven't delved deep into it. I've seen the headlines and I've kind of glanced at the photos. Uh, it's. It's very cartoonish, not necessarily in a bad way. Uh, so I don't think I have an opinion on that specific one. I actually do like the G-Wagon. I like the older ones. And yeah. when I say older ones, that's an asterisk too, because uh, that <laughs> truck has been around for 30 plus years. And they sold basically the same one that they sold uh, you know, in the 70s when it first came out is essentially the same one that they sold up until 2000 and uh, I think 18 until the new one came out yeah. and uh, with obviously different variations to it. But uh, I, I love how the utilitarian aspect of it versus like the glam aspect that some people might associate with it. I was going to say, you, you know, the Judson offices are right next to Blue Door. And if you just go to where like they have all the cars valeted, like right there in front of the building, it's just G-Wagon after G-Wagon. You know? Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely is a... Um, can be a fashion accessory of sorts, uh, yeah. but I I like the old rough ones. Uh, I actually I wanted to get a two door, a short wheelbase one uh, as a daily driver, uh, but I had kind of had an issue with uh, the fact that it's a thirty plus year old car. The one I was looking at was a mid nineties one, but still like day to day driving. Houston is. Uh, adventurous as far as like driving I was gonna around say, in. like driving driving any sort of car like that in Houston yeah. and our street here we've got such horrible potholes it's it's rough yeah I, I know. know which is why I I recently uh I I, I bought a Land Cruiser it's actually hmm. it's a, a Lexus LX 470 um but it's a um I I wanted to try it out a essentially an off-road vehicle for this for our streets, uh, <laughs> it can be kind of stressful driving around in uh, a sportier car around here. And I have to say, I kind of get it. I I'm like six feet up in the air, which I'm a of shorter stature, so I appreciate that perspective. Yeah. And bumps, no problem. I have popped tires. I have like dented rims, like driving over our potholes, and like this is a dream. Uh, yeah. And you are essentially off-roading when you're driving through inner city Houston. So, uh, yeah. All right. We got one more car left. What are we doing? Oh, one more car left. Uh, oh, let's see. Um, I will go with, um, Ooh, this is a tough one. That I have a situation to wrap around this choice. Uh, I will say um, I'll go with a 
Japanese car this time. Uh, so uh, why don't we say the Toyota Century, which is a car that people may not be very familiar with. Uh, but same thing with the G-Wagon. They had produced this car initially in the 1960s. And uh, it's a car that's really steeped in tradition, going back to thematic things that we've been discussing. But they produced this car, the same car, all the way up until 2017, essentially. Mm. Uh, you know, kind of pretty recently. Uh, yeah, upgrading it kind of along the way. But it is a car. If you bought a 2015 Toyota Century, it was only available in Japan, uh, so it's a right-hand drive car. But it's it's this car that is meant to denote um, dignity. It was uh, cars that. Um, executives and prime ministers were driven around in, and people are importing them for you know their own for their own uh, personal use here. And uh, it's this car that just stands for so much. It doesn't look like an it looks like an old car. It, and you, there are a couple of them in Houston that I can think of, and they're not very expensive uh, now. When you buy them, they're probably like, you know the equivalent of hundred thousand dollar cars, mm-hmm. and then you can buy them now for like ten thousand uh, dollars. And, you know, they all have, you know, 15, 20,000 miles on them because uh, as a car gets older in Japan, uh, road tax gets higher. And so they just park them and then export them. And it is the image of dignity, I guess. If you understand what the car is, uh, mm-hmm. it just stands for like dignity. And, yeah. uh, you know, uh, again, I have this high appreciation for the fact that like they made this exact same car. And it has meant the exact same, like throughout the decades. Uh, I actually have a scale model of one over here. Oh, really? I want to see this thing. Yeah. Uh, This is actually the, this is the 2018 uh, Toyota Century. Uh, So uh, it, this is, so it looks like a newer car, but the, uh, the older one, the pre-2017 one, uh, looks like a 1960s, four-door executive car essentially this model is actually kind of neat because in japan they also uh prefer wool upholstery so this model has wool upholstery and (laughs) wool this is what i love too it's so weird because you know if you've been to japan like up is down left is right like things have no root in our sense of things because obviously different places but in Japan, leather is not necessarily viewed as more premium. So you think a premium car, leather upholstery is very nice. Over there, it's wool. And allegedly, the reason is because when you slide across it, it does not make undignified noises. That's so, right. I love it. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I, I actually I have a right-hand drive car. I have <laughs> uh, a Toyota Celsior, which is uh, a U.S. market's Lexus LS 400. It has kind of the same, that was meant to be kind of like the, uh, it, my car is like a 1992. Uh, mm-hmm. And at the time it launched, it was kind of the, it was meant to be like the new wave. It was supposed to take on like the uh, notions that a an executive car could be uh, something different. Uh, yeah. And so it was, this still, uh, the century still remained uh obviously it's still being produced now but um so they they had like two different ways of thinking about like i guess executive transport yeah uh, i bought it because um it's a timeless design uh mm-hmm. it, it's also very iconic uh the ls400 changed the way that 
uh, the U the rest of the world thought about like what a um uh, like a high quality vehicle should be and so mm -hmm. uh it has wool upholstery uh it it i i drive it around just for fun for like road trips and Hell whatnot. Yeah. it's right hand drive uh and it has like reclining and massaging rear seats what uh, yeah, insane. all the features are in the back where I don't sit. Uh, yeah, which if you were the prime minister, you're riding in the back seat of the car. You're not yeah. in the front. So it yeah. makes sense. Yeah, but I like that it's discreet. So that car is very discreet, and the Toyota Century is very discreet. Again, just yeah. kind of in line with Japan. Uh, I mean, there are different aspects of Japan where like show and glamour and uh, glitz is very, um, it you know, it's very appropriate. And then the other part of that. Is very discreet it's very low-key like it is about like uh you know this very private experience or this very mm -hmm. refined experience uh so anyways uh i don't know if that answered any question no but, that was great uh that'll be my select for number three i love it and then my last thing is what do you drink your whiskey out of are you a glencairn glass kind of guy or oh. is it just regular uh, highball i i just have this heavy set tumbler and mm -hmm. i will i will say like on a day-to-day -day basis uh i, I should have said like uh, out of this coffee mug uh, yeah there we go that way i can drink it morning morning through night without uh judgment but um <laughs> no i actually have these ikea tumblers um they're very yeah. durable i've broken several and don't feel bad about it uh and you know heavy at the bottom uh and it kind of gets thinner up top and it's just great for everyday use. Uh, I do have I do have some nicer ones that I rarely use, uh, maybe on occasion for guests. Uh, yeah. And I also have a um, a Japanese whiskey ice baller uh, hmm. with the weight, so it's like uh, very precisely milled uh, aluminum, and the weight will compress this ice cylinder into a perfect sphere. Okay. Uh, and I, my brother had given it to me for uh, my birthday several years ago, and. On occasion, I will make my perfect whiskey sphere for when a giant rock is called for. <laughs> Otherwise, the rock comes out of my freezer. But no, you don't use those whiskey stones. None of that. I do, uh, except that I, you know, I tend to take. Uh, I I sip very slowly, and so the whiskey rock tends to lose its coolness uh, <laughs> well before I'm close to finishing my yeah. drink so i do have those in the freezer they probably unfortunately you're getting a glimpse to my life like uh my life now but unfortunately they probably not taste just like, me everyone listening this oh, is oh yeah that's true yeah. yeah uh they probably taste like whatever is in my freezer so that's also not ideal <laughs> well luckily you don't cook a lot so there's not a lot in your freezer so. no no it's just whiskey cubes uh <laughs> so there you have never it. never just room temperature never just whiskey without um, ice on occasion i think I'll do that uh, when I'm drinking with other people over. It's a new whiskey that I haven't tasted before. Uh, mm -hmm. I used to be, you know, when uh, starting out drinking whiskey, it was neat, uh, yeah. neat and nothing else. And then, you know, I discovered the joys of opening it up with a splash of water. And then mm -hmm. I then discovered the joys of like, I one or two rocks and letting that, letting it slowly open up as you drink it. And then, like on a day-to-day -day basis, sometimes you just need a cold, stiff drink, especially in today's yeah. world. Uh, so um, a large rock it is. And Hell yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, awesome. Uh, Chris, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Um, let Definitely. people know where they can find you um, 
on Instagram or online? Um, let them know where they can get you. Uh, yeah, you can find me on Instagram at, at Analog Dialogue, American spelling, OG and OG. Uh, I am also on Twitter if you are interested in more car-oriented conversation. And I apologize in advance for things I might be posting on Twitter. More uh, <laughs> of the uh, embarrassing variety than offensive. Uh, but also uh, at Analog Dialogue as well. And then if you, again, are interested in uh, automotive talk, um, the new Pro 96 podcast is available on uh, wherever you might find your podcast. Big thanks again to Chris for taking the time. Please check out his podcast. It's super fun. And check out his website, analogdialogue.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.